Peace be with you. Man, it's a great privilege for me to be here with you guys this morning um, to uh, preach the word of the gospel uh, to you guys. Uh, it's a great uh, feeling to, to come back uh, home um, where God did a lot of amazing things in my own life through both joys and, and sufferings. And so it's always great to be back with you uh, worshiping the Lord and um, preaching the gospel. So uh, as was already stated, my name is Carlos, and uh, I'm a church planting resident in the process currently of planting a new local church in the east end of Houston. Uh, for those of you who don't know where that is, if you've ever gone to an Astros game, that neighborhood east of that where the Dynamo Stadium and then further on in, um, all of that section is considered the east end. And so this is where we're planting uh, together with my wife and a team of people uh, by God's grace over the next few months we'll be uh, publicly launching this local church. So we appreciate any and all the prayers that you guys could lift up um, on our behalf. And if you have any questions on what it might look like to help us plant this church, uh, I'd love to talk to you after the gathering. So uh, come up to me uh, and talk and ask any questions that you may have. I'd love to uh, talk about that with you. So uh, before we begin, uh, please join me in prayer. Heavenly and, and gracious Father, we thank you for the privilege that it is, Lord, to uh, worship you together as your people. What a, what a great privilege it is to come before your throne and uh, worship together in unison uh, as we rehearse what one day will be our eternal and, pre and permanent reality. Thank you for that. As we dive into this, uh, this weighty and, and joyful topic of your resurrection, God, would you cause our numb uh, and dull hearts to come alive? Let your word cause my heart and my fellow brothers and sisters' hearts to come alive. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as was already uh, alluded to last week, we uh, continued our, our sermon series in the book of First Corinthians, right? And throughout all sojourn churches, we've been preaching through this uh, book for some time now. And last week, we, uh, we began this chapter, right, chapter 15, uh, where Paul reminds the Corinthians, and by extension, us, of what is of first importance, the gospel. But specifically speaking, a gospel with a bodily resurrection of Jesus, Jesus' physical appearance to his disciples and then the 500 eyewitnesses and lastly to Paul himself as a defense for, for this bodily resurrection. And this week we're, we're in a text uh, where Paul addresses the resurrection of the dead in general, but particularly the resurrection of Christ and how his resurrection is what makes or breaks Christianity. In his book, Making Sense of God, Tim Keller gives us an illustration and provides his readers with, with the following. Imagine you have two women of the same age, the same socioeconomic status, the same educational level, and even the same temperament. You hire both of them and say to each, you are part of an assembly line and I want you to put part A into slot B and then hand what you have assembled to someone else. And I want you to do that over and over for eight hours a day you put them in identical rooms with identical lighting, temperature, and ventilation. You give them the very same number of breaks in a day. It is very boring work. Their conditions are the same in every way except for one difference. You tell the first woman that at the end of the year, you will pay her $30,000. And you tell the second woman that at the end of the year, you'll pay her $30 million. 
After a couple of weeks, the first woman will be saying, isn't this tedious? Isn't, isn't this driving you insane? Aren't you thinking about quitting? And the second woman will say, no, this is perfectly acceptable. In fact, I whistle while I work. What's going on here? You have two human beings who are experiencing identical circumstances in radically different ways. What makes the difference? It is their expectation of the future. This illustration is not intended to say that all we need is a good income. It does, however, show that what we believe about our future completely controls how we are experiencing our present. In other words, we are irreducibly hope-based creatures. This morning, my hope for all of us is that the hope found in the resurrection of Christ and what it secured for us would vivify, would rejuvenate and fuel our faith to live as dual citizens on earth, dual citizens on mission, permanent citizens of heaven living as temporary citizens of earth. So let's look at verses 12 through 19 as we begin. I'll read it for us again. It says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Corinthians, the, the Corinthians were being influenced right, by this non-Christian view that denied the resurrection. And when it comes to non-Christian views of the resurrection held by the Greeks and Jews, the Greeks and those influenced by the Greeks believed that the soul would live on in the afterlife, but that the physical body which was inherently evil, would pass away. We would finally get rid of this physical body, which was evil. And so the death of the physical body was a good thing to the Greeks. So to believe in a bodily resurrection, physical resurrection of the Messiah, the pure one, was counterintuitive for those with a Greek mindset. And as for ancient Jewish views of the resurrection, the Jews did believe that at the very end of the world, everything would be renovated and restored. They anticip- anticipated this new heaven and this new earth at the end of time when there would be bodily, physical resurrection. However, they didn't have a worldview to accommodate a belief of a physical, bodily resurrection in the middle of history. So because Paul got word that some within the Corinthian church were denying the resurrection, he made sure to write to them about this essential Doctrine, But to emphasize his point, he would first, in this section I just read, use a sort of a logical argument showing them the, the consequences or the implications of denying the resurrection. So let's look at, take a look at Paul's argument here. Paul starts his list of logical consequences of the denial in verse 13 by saying, if there's no resurrection of the dead, Christ hasn't been raised, and if he hasn't been raised, then our preaching 
And subsequently, our message that we preach is also vain. In other words, it's useless. And our faith is also vain and useless. We've been even caught lying about God, misrepresenting who God is if we say that he raised Christ when indeed he didn't. We're lying about God, a fearful thing to be caught doing because we claim that God raised Jesus if he actually didn't, attributing to God something he never did. Again, Paul repeats the argument for emphasis, right? But, but using a distinct phrase, which will later connect to our bodily resurrection. He says, if the dead are not raised, then he states again, this means that Christ hasn't been raised and your faith is futile, worthless, pointless, meaningless. And he adds the following phrase to show them how it directly affects them in the present. He tells them, and you're still dead in your sin. If Christ has not raised, not only is your faith worthless, but you still stand condemned before a holy God. So so, so think about how the Gentile believer, the one who uh, growing up in this time period was often reminded he was excluded from the household of God, from the commonwealth of Israel, and finally coming to this good news that Jesus engrafts him into the olive tree of the people of God. He says, if Christ has not been raised, you're still dead in your sin. You're still an outsider of the kingdom of God. You're still an enemy. You're not part of the commonwealth of Israel. You're found to be a fraud with no forgiveness. You're still God's enemy. So what else does this crucial denial of the resurrection mean? It means that those who have died in Jesus, their loved ones who have passed away believing in Jesus have perished and gone to hell. They've been condemned as well for believing a lie if Christ has not been raised. And he goes on in verse 19 saying, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, In other words, if Christ only applies to our life before death, but death is still in power over us, then out of every group of people, out of every single religion on the face of the earth, we are the most miserable, the most pitiful, the most pathetic people on earth. Everyone should feel sorry for us. That's what he's saying is the logical conclusion to denying the resurrection. Gordon Fee in his commentary of the Corinthians says this, by believing in Christ's death and resurrection, we have placed our trust in Christ to forgive us our sins. But if Christ is not raised from the dead, that means we not only do not have present forgiveness, but have lost our future hope for the, our hope for the future as well. And if we have believed in the future when there is no future, then of all human beings, we are the most to be pitied, not because Christian existence is interested only in the future, but because the loss of the future means the loss of the past and of the present as well. So essentially Paul is saying, hey, you might as well, you might as well hang up, hang your shoes up, hang your, your gloves up. You might as well forget about this faith, abandon it completely if Christ hasn't raised from the dead because there's no hope of ever being justified before God on the basis of your own good works. In Romans 4, 17, Paul, speaking of Abraham, writes that God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness because he believed in the God who gives life to the dead. And he goes on in verses 20 to 25 to say this, no unbelief made him, Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. 
That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification, for our right standing with God. If Jesus was not raised bodily, brothers and sisters, then he died for nothing because this means that God didn't actually accept his payment for sin. God the Father raising Jesus through the power of the Spirit proves that Jesus was who he said he was, God in the flesh, the Messiah who comes to take away the sins of the world, the one who who God the Father has sent to do his will. So we believe, brothers and sisters, in a message of accomplishment, right, of an act which secured eternity for all of those who believed. This means that the gospel is not a message of how to merely live better moral lives so we can be happy. No, the gospel stands against such messages that only promise self-improvement for the sake of self-fulfillment. Christ's resurrection declares to a dying world that the gospel is not mere self-help advice. It is the proclamation that God raised Jesus from the dead and through him raises dead women and men to life. He raises us from death to life. So without the doctrine of the bodily resurrection, there is no gospel. We have no gospel. Keller says that the resurrection is the hinge upon which the story of the world pivots. So brothers and sisters, we ought to dive deep into this doctrine of the resurrection. We ought to know it well, swim its depths and all that it has accomplished for us. For the Corinthians, Paul makes it plain that if they were to deny it, They'd be denying the foundation upon which Christianity rests firmly. Not only do they lose hope of a glorious future, but they lose their past forgiveness and supposed salvation. And they have no peace with which to live in the present life because they still stand condemned before God. On the other hand, the word for those who accept Christ's resurrection as reality is a blessed one. It includes not only forgiveness of sins and because of that fullness of life in the present, but it also means a glorious future, including a resurrection like Christ. Since Christ is indeed raised from the dead, we know this to be true. Neither our faith nor our preaching is in vain, which is the point Paul is making in the following portion, verses 20 through 28. Paul uses the images of first fruits in verse 20 to underline the link between our fate and the fate of Christ. See, Christ's resurrection is not an isolated event. When we talk about a, the bodily resurrection, Jesus is the first fruits of the bodily resurrection. What does that mean? Well, although this term has Old Testament history, Paul isn't necessarily focused on uh, the first fruits that we find in Leviticus where uh, the people of God offer their first fruits to God. No, he's talking in terms of farming. The quality of the first fruits of the harvest indicated to the farmer the quality of the rest of the harvest, the rest of the fruit that was to come. It tells the farmer whether they will reap a good harvest or a bad one. So in using this metaphor, Paul is illustrating something similar 
similar to a down payment of uh, when Paul talks elsewhere in Ephesians about the seal of the spirit being the down payment for our salvation. So is the resurrection of Christ, in a sense, a down payment and a promise secured that we will one day rise because Christ rose. Essentially, he's saying that Jesus' bodily resurrection serves as a present pledge or guarantee on the part of God for the future resurrection of all those who believe in him. See, the doctrine of the bodily resurrection tells us that because Christ is risen and reigning, we will one day rise and reign with him. Because Christ is risen and reigning, we will one day rise and reign with him, brothers and sisters. Christ was man's representative, and he was perfect. And he compares him to Adam in verses 21 through 22, telling us that Jesus is the greater Adam or is greater than Adam as a representative. He makes this comparison between the two, saying that Adam's sin came, uh, through Adam's sin came death, but through Christ's resurrection came a future hope and a promise of a resurrection like his. So where Adam failed and where we failed, Jesus succeeded. And because he succeeded and was raised from the dead, our future has been secured. A future in which we'll get it witness death being destroyed. Beginning in verse 23, then Paul gives us a beautiful telling of this glorious future that awaits us, a future secured by his resurrection. He's focused on getting one thing across here to prove the necessity of the resurrection of the dead so that the final defeat of death can finally happen. And he points to Christ's resurrection as the basis and proof for that. One day, Paul makes clear, and we'll hear about that um, later on in this chapter, verses 54, 55, will be a reality. where It says that death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Do you think often, brothers and sisters, as you live day to day, that one day all things will be made new? That one day those who died in Christ will be raised to life? That one day Jesus will complete his global redemptive work and hand the kingdom over to his beloved Father, our Father. And Jesus himself will subject himself at that time to the Father, not in any way showing that he's less than him, but rather inviting us to witness the beautifully mysterious nature of the Trinity. God the Father ruling and reigning with perfect love over all things, pleased to see his son exalted, loving each other perfectly through the power and the bond of the Spirit. We'll be invited into that life of the Trinity to witness that divine love that's been Eternal, before he even created us. And we see this culminating in God being what, what Paul calls all in all in verse 28. In a sense, that's a Paulism, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a kind of language unique to Paul's writing. But Ephesians 1, 7 through 10 provides us with more detail on what he meant by that. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, 
which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. He's saying that on that glorious day, nothing will be undone, nothing will be broken, nothing will be incomplete, but everything will be restored to perfect harmony the way God intended it to be originally. As Gordon Fee again so eloquently puts it, at the, at the death of death, the final rupture in the universe will be healed and God alone will rule over all beings, banishing those who have rejected his offer of life and lovingly governing all those who by grace have entered into God's Sabbath rest. And if you've ever heard the, the old hymn, Finding It Home, it poetically speaks of this day. When engulfed by the terror of the tempestuous sea, unknown waves before you roll. At the end of doubt and peril is eternity, though fear and conflict seize your soul. When surrounded by the blackness of the darkest night, oh, how lonely death can be. At the end of this long tunnel is a shining light, for death is swallowed up in victory. But just think of stepping on shore and finding it heaven, of touching a hand and finding it God's hand of breathing new life and finding it celestial, of waking up in glory and finding it home. Brothers and sisters, the ultimate promise of Christianity, the ultimate hope of the Christian is that one day we'll be with him. One day we'll be with him. So how should this then affect us today, right? Is the question we must ask. How does this affect how I live and how we live today? And Paul definitely doesn't leave us in the dark in that. He gives the Corinthians some straightforward exhortations that we can take and apply to ourselves today in verses 29 through 34. So let's look at that last section. He says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So Paul, in verse 29, again, using his logical reasoning with those denying the resurrection, asked them why they're even getting baptized on behalf of the dead, which was a practice they were doing. Why are, they, why are you doing that if you're denying the resurrection anyway? And his purpose right here is not necessarily to come against that practice, which we know that Paul is definitely against that. His purpose is to show their flawed logic, Show how their beliefs are not lining up with what they're doing. And so Paul's main intention is not to come against them, as I said, but to show them if the dead aren't raised at all, then what is the purpose of this? And then he goes on to point to himself. He says, if the dead are not raised, then why have I gone through all the suffering, the persecution, near-death experiences Why have I lived a risky life for the sake of the gospel if the dead are not raised? And he reminds them of all his suffering and even swears by his pride in them as his spiritual children. He says, I die every day. So using himself as the example, 
which ironically is, is he's using the suffering and the persecution and the, on the, on the, on, you know, with earthly eyes, his failures by being shipwrecked and so on and so forth, with, which the Corinthians were using to, to show. You see, he's a weak apostle. We can't trust him. He's actually using that to say, hey, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then you're right. I am a false apostle. But if Christ did rise from the grave, then it stands. Christ truly appeared to me and that the faith that you have is not futile, but is full of hope. He doesn't seek, Paul, to secure a good earthly life at the expense of God's mission, and he makes it known. He knows he's been crucified with Christ. He knows it is no longer him who lives, but Christ who lives in him. So allow me to, to allow Paul to share his heart for himself out of Acts 20, 20 through 22 through 25. How did Paul respond in light of the gospel and the resurrection? He says, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the spirit. This is as he's leaving the Ephesians and, and, and bidding his farewell to them. He says, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So we see Paul responding in that way, right? What does this mean for us? It means that as Christians, then, we don't need to engage in self-preservation like Paul and self-protection because we cannot ultimately lose Even the loss of life is not an ultimate loss. Because of the reality of the resurrection, we can look death square in the eye. We can look at danger square in the eye without fear. Ironically, it's the resurrection of Christ that gives Christians what hedonism and self-exploration falsely promise. The ability to live and enjoy life to the fullest without fear. This means that the resurrection of Christ and our future resurrection should compel us and empower us to live selfless, sacrificial lives in the present. Lives of godliness and abandon to God's mission of seeing to it that more and more people come to know this Jesus of the gospel, the Jesus who rose from the grave and defeated death and will one day kill death completely and permanently. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, as he said, we, we're, we're playing games here. We're wasting our time. If, if Christ didn't rise from the grave, we're planting churches in vain. We're seeking to share Christ with others in vain. We're seeking to be seen as weird and awkward and persecuted or slandered in vain if Christ didn't rise from the grave. But in fact, he did rise from the grave, which means we have no need to fear all of these things. He then exhorts the Corinthians and us by extension today not to be carried away by these deceitful schemes or doctrines. This, this quote has been, has been used a lot, right? But you know, maybe, maybe you heard it growing up, bad company ruins good morals. But what he's really trying to get at here, if we look at the original Greek here, the, the word translated company can either mean companionship or conversation. So he continues to exhort them to, to live godly, but, then he, but he also says it might be more accurate to translate this as uh, uh, company or evil, to, to evil conversation. So 
it could sound something like this. Evil conversations such as those that deny the resurrection of the dead can only have a corrupting effect on your character. You're saying stay away from those corrupt and evil conversations, denying the essential doctrine of the resurrection. Problem, the main problem for the Corinthians, and you could even argue the reason why we see so much sin in this letter of 1 Corinthians, because they had forgotten their future reality. They were denying such an essential part of the gospel without which there is no gospel. So he, so he exhorts and he almost rebukes them, saying, wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and don't go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. Many who have an intellectual knowledge of the resurrection lack a transformative knowledge. And he compares this to a drunken stupor. He encourages them, live godly. Live as if you don't belong here. Live as if the resurrection of the future of your body will one day occur because it will. Let that affect the way you live on this earth as a temporary citizen, right? As a sojourner, just traveling through this earth. And if you could allow me to be a bit more practical as we come to a close, the fact that we will one day be resurrected and dwell with him eternally should compel us, especially in this kind of political environment, to treat this country like a temporary mission field, not a place to create security for ourselves, regardless of where you stand. The hope of our future resurrections means we can seek the shalom of our city, the, the welfare, the wholeness, the peace of our city and every kind of person in it during our exile instead of hoarding and storing up treasures for ourselves here on earth. The resurrection of Christ and your future hope of a resurrection should affect, should affect our lives and how we live today. So when we preach this gospel of grace, brothers and sisters, when we share it with each other, when we encourage each other when we're down, when we share it with our coworkers, with our neighbors, with the friends who don't know Jesus, let us expound on this glorious truth of the bodily resurrection, that Jesus has defeated death. Paraphrasing uh, C.S. Lewis, but he, he said that throughout the book of Acts, when the, the Christians in the book of Acts preached the gospel they preached primarily the resurrection of Christ. Let us believe a gospel worth giving our life for, right, is essentially what he's saying. A gospel worth losing our life for. A gospel worth sharing with those who are on their way towards a Christless eternity. This is why we plant churches. This is why we take risks, because Christ rose from the grave. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have defeated sin and have defeated death on our behalf. And one day we will reign and rule with you in the past, present, or even future pain that we experience as, as temporary citizens of earth will one day be a distant, distant memory as we dwell with you and you dwell with us as our God. Would you allow that to shape and mold how we live today, how we see ourselves, our marriages, our children, our neighborhoods, our finances, our friendships. Would you remind us, God, that we are indeed sojourners, 
And thank you for your grace that corrects us when we're wrong. Thank you for your grace that reminds me and corrects me when I want to make earth my permanent dwelling place. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.